It is time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And on the telephone line, playing the role of my dad, is in fact my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Well, I'm loaded for bear. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two shout-outs. Shout-out number one for MXM Block, a local organization of black mothers led by Lakeisha Miniweather and Linia Mendoza that uh, first marched with the mothers that were going to separate the protesters and the cops downtown and recognize that uh, there was kind of a lack of focus. But what they are doing, they are doing great help victims of, of the wildfires. Just a wonderful thing that they're doing. Shout out. And then I want to shout out for Michael Hayden, the former CIA and NSA boss, who has done a, a an ad, actually, for the Republicans for Biden, in which he excoriates Donald Trump, just really puts him down. And, and John Brennan, who's so far has not had the courage to do the same, kind of does the same by being quoted saying that Michael Hayden is a great patriot and he's right. So it's a wonderful thing, but those are two shout-outs. Then before we dive into the news, I just want to acknowledge the passing of Jim Weaver, who was congressman from the 5th District for many, for several years, and, and who I knew well, passed away at 93. And Eddie Van Halen, who was really kind of the, the Segovia of rock guitar, passed away at 65, want to acknowledge their passing. Those are both worth talking about a little bit. I didn't know Eddie Van Halen, but I knew his work. I knew Jim Weaver. I didn't realize Jim Weaver had died. I had a chance to sit down with Jim Weaver. He wrote a book, uh, I think it was called Half and Half, uh, that was his own theory about liberals and conservatives, which he basically said, listen, about half the people, just about half the people are sort of compassionate types, and about half the people aren't. And so that's kind of shaken out our politics, where half of our politics are you know, sort of about compassion and half is about, I mean, he was, he used some pugnacious language about it. He would have considered himself a compassionate type in his politics. And he's half, half the people in their policy are kind of jerks. Uh, so I was, and this is the gym we were talking about, right? He lived in Eugene, was in, uh, was in Congress, ran for Secretary of State as a Green Party member one time? Yep. Yep. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, yeah, Eddie Van Halen, who... Uh, many rock guitarists attempted to copy, but nobody could quite get the same sound out of their guitar, right? We end up, and I'm borrowing from Chuck Klosterman, who had a uh, did some really good analysis on on Eddie Van Halen that uh, coming out of where whereas punk rock was uh, was accessible in a way that so many people thought that they could do that, that they could get in their garage and make that music. Nobody thought that they could do what Eddie Van Halen did, but his music was accessible because it could be enjoyed by such a broad swath of people. And they got, you know, for musicianship, uh, for a harder rock, for a metal band, you know, one that became very commercially successful, of course, and then had a broader array of sound that you would just uh, describe as metal uh, to be as popular as the as the uh, album 1984, where some people think they sort of turned a corner, uh, certainly became more successful then. Yeah, Dad, I'm glad you shouted out Eddie Van Halen. We should probably be playing some Van Halen today. That something that we got to talk about, though, and I think we should jump off with, is the debate last night. Absolutely, that's where I want to start. All right, Kamala Harris, Mike Pence, you and I already described it as, you described it as the first consequential vice presidential debate because both of these people are running under dudes who are just about octogenarians and either of them might become president what were your takes on the debate well first before i give my take on the debate i've got to talk a little bit about the venue do, do 
Are you aware of our connection to Kingsbury Hall? Oh, I for, I didn't realize, of course. So Pops, my grandfather, who I never met, Dad's dad, uh, operated Kingsbury Hall, was the head of, uh, head of theater at an English department, etc. Dad, you can explain better, uh, at the University of Utah where the debate was. And that's right. And his, like, his like picture and stuff is out in the hallway right outside that room then. That, that is exactly right. And when we gathered, when the family gathered to commemorate what would have been his 100th birthday if he'd lived to be 100, we, we gathered in a, right after the, shortly after, I guess uh, three years after the, the complete renovation of Kingsbury Hall, to the dedication of a large room there to, named after him it's named after your grand your grandfather i had forgot i had not made i hadn't heard them announce the location I knew it was university of utah i had missed the part where they announced the building i should have made that connection i'm glad you made that connection now all right dad <laughs> given that the debate is mostly about us then what is no the, wait a minute before uh, i'm not uh, done yet oh i'm sorry but before we get away from that one of my very earliest memories as a child it's really interesting. I must have been three years old. My dad, of course, was the head of the speech and drama department at the University of Utah. He was there for that. That was his building. And they have lots of good stories about that. And, and I'm going to tell one of them because it had it had such a huge effect on, on my beliefs and my value system. But one of my earliest memories was I must have been about three, and we were out in front of Kingsbury Hall, and he introduced me to someone, introduced me to somebody, and I was very shy and, and grabbed hold of his pants and, and hid behind. And, and I remember, remember thinking, even though I was three years old, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. It was okay. Just a really good memory. But, but I, I had the privilege of being in a play on the stage that we looked at last night. When I was five years old, I was a little boy in, 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 a, in a play there. The uh, and and the story I just wanted. What to was know, the play? Oh, I thought that was the story. What was the play? It it was uh, it was a play about gangsters that that. Uh, and you I, played I a child gangster. What? And you played a child gangster. Uh, no, I play, I played the child of the people who were being held hostage by the gangsters. The, ho- the hostage child number two. Right. All right. But but the the impression one one of the one of the things that most influenced my attitude towards race was the story that my dad told which would have happened would have happened when I was alive but but uh, he told it a few years later probably 11 or 12 when he when he made sure I knew the story he invited Marian Anderson to sing at Kingsbury Hall and he was and when Marian Anderson came to Salt Lake to sing she was not allowed to stay at the Hotel Utah, which was the premier hotel in Salt Lake, because she was black. She had to go to the Newhouse Hotel. And, and that struck me as so fundamentally wrong. It, it, it really started me on the tra- tra- trajectory to the very deep and strong feelings I have about... And this is why our family isn't that rich, because you ended up becoming like out. an activist type. Because uh, oh, you started developing your Bolshevik tendencies. Yep. Well, Pop. So let's talk it. about the debate. I'm going to give you my reflections. The, I'm going to start off with a few. First of all, I started by asking people. I watched it with a couple folks distanced. And, the, uh, and I asked them what they thought. And one was, uh, and one was a young woman and one was her dad. And the uh, young woman, and I said, what, what scores do you give them? And she said, well, I'd give Kamala Harris a 7 out of 10, and I would give Mike Pence a 5 out of 10. And I asked her dad, and she said, well, I think that uh, her take, his take was, I think they were both 7s out of 10, but I think that the expectations for the Trump team are so low that any change from Trump, any tie, is for Trump a win. So actually, it was a, his take was it's a good night for Trump. You look at the instant reaction polling, and it reflects a little bit that exchange, that 50, not exactly you know a margin of the first my first witness, who was a 7 out of 10 versus a 5 out of 10, but also not a tie. It was The one I saw was 59% said Kamala did better. 39% said that Mike Pence did better. Now, that gives me a few conclusions. 
and they are these. First of all, that all of us bring, and the reason I start by asking what other people think rather than offering what I think is all of us are colored by or impacted by our viewpoints in who we think did better an election. The times that we nod are increased based on if people say things with which we agree. And the times we shake our head and say, no, no, that's dumb or impacted by the number of times we hear something that we disagree. So when I, so, that, so the 5939, I, to me, that seems hauntingly close. So they're a little bit better for Kamala Harris than the recent polls of Trump versus Biden. The other, though, was, and I am still interested, and I want to look at the crosstabs. I would like to look at, and I'm sure there are, is greater detail that might maybe even accessible this morning. But I have to imagine there is a difference, at least some difference, between the way men and women perceive this debate. And this is, and this is why. That Frank Luntz put up on the screen that people are disappointed with, that Kamala Harris looks more passionate, but, uh, but there's pushback on her facial expressions. And I looked at the way that uh, that she interacted with Joe Biden. And she did, you know, she would smile and she would have ways that she, you know, kind of demonstrated her sarcasm or her uh, her disagreement uh, with what he was saying. But I compared it with what Mike Pence was doing, which did include lots of interruptions, did include little micro interruptions like no, just a little no, did include his what seemed just a tremendously patronizing Susan, Susan that it seemed like these are also, these are the kind of things that should bother us, but we are so inured to them. We are so used to, you know, ingrained misogynist behavior that it might not get recognized by the top lines of Frank Luntz focus group. But that, so those are my takes, that it is, this is the first time we've had a vice, president, vice presidential nominee uh, I think I don't just think I have concluded I have talked about on the air how much ingrained misogyny played a role in the Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump election. And I saw it also at play in the analysis of last night. And I think in the reactions that people had, what am I missing, Dad? Or what did you notice? Well, first, first, I think we need to acknowledge the that God said a fly. <laughs> You, you you think you think the star of the show is the fly that landed on Mike Pence's hairspray? <laughs> well, it was it really was awfully funny, and he and he seemed blissfully unaware that it was there. <laughs> uh, the and apparently a fly is a sign of decay and weakness. Just to, historically <laughs> and in symbology, that's what a fly uh, represents. Did you ask anybody to rate the moderator? Uh, I didn't. What did you think? How did you think about it? Susan Page? Right? I am I am just waiting. I am waiting for the moderator of a national debate to say, answer who the is question? going to say, let me restate my question. And if they don't get an answer to the question, once again, would you please address my question? I was I was watching just an excerpt of a debate in Arizona between the senatorial candidates, and the Republican candidate was asked if she was proud of her support for DDT, and she dodged it. And he said, let me ask it again. And she dodged it, and he asked it again. And finally he said, I guess that means you are proud of your support for DD for you're proud of your support for DDT which is exactly the kind of thing these happen because there was so much dodging last night Kamala did some and Pence was almost universal in his dodging of questions that he didn't want to answer there was not a lot and I want to make sure I don't just engage in false equivalency uh, I did think it might have been a missed opportunity by Kamala Harris to if she had been had had close fealty to the questions, if she had really tried, I know that your school of thought. There's a couple schools of thoughts on debates, folks. There's more than two, but here are two of them. The one that you hear from most political consultants is there will be questions. Use those as opportunities to say the things that are most important to you to say during the debate time. Regardless of what the question is, yeah, with some one, connection that is to the one question, philosophy and the other philosophy, go ahead because it is going to help be mine. 
Yeah, the other one is the Joe Smith philosophy, which is answer the damn question. <laughs> and if you want to explain, if it's a yes or no question, start by saying yes or no, and then say, and let me say more. And that, I do believe, and it's not a strategy that's used that often, or the really smart political consultants don't advise it, but I do think it could be a winner. And had Kamala Harris done it, I think it would have put it in really high relief how much Mike Pence didn't want to answer the question about what they would do differently about the coronavirus, wouldn't uh, th that his uh, response on whether he believed that climate change was a an existential threat, which he didn't answer at all. Uh, it, I'll, I forget even what he said. He just said some I don't know, remember what well, he said. He went back to the previous question. Every That's time right. He, he went back to the, back previous, to the question. previous question. And so I, anyway, those are schools of thought. And I do think that there is, uh, uh, I think there was an opportunity for Kamala Harris to engage in the Joe Smith uh, Absolutely. Campaign. And if she did that, and then at least once would have said when he was asked a question, and the, the, the climate change would have been the great one to do it, would have, when she was asked to comment, she said, well, before I comment, I would like to give the the vice president the opportunity to answer the question because he didn't and then just wait quietly yeah that was one so but what would you give if you were going to give uh, Kamala Harris a score on, on a one to ten and if you're gonna give Mike Pence score one to ten dad what would you have done I, I would I would say that the person who rated them both at sevens not far off I think I would have rated Pence as, as more of a six but but of course I do I do have my bias I find uh, I find him very distasteful, but, but he did a he did a he did a good job, and uh, he was rude, but uh, but so politely rude. He's so politely rude. It's so yeah. such a soft spoken. He, 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 he was he wasn't he wasn't like he wasn't like the president's rudeness, unless he was rude. But but uh, if I I would like to think that if I were a woman, especially if I were a reasonably educated woman, that I would have really, really disliked the uh, the misogyny that, that was underlying the whole thing. Katie's take was that Kamala Harris kicked his tail. That was her take. And she was unequivocal about it. She thought it kicked his tail. And so I am interested in, I'm just making this, uh, interested in where there might be, not only along political lines, but also in general identification lines, where people might differ in their analysis. Speaking still to Susan Page, I thought her uh, efforts, although it was a little bit easier to wrangle because Donald Trump wasn't on the stage, I thought, her que I thought she asked really intelligent questions. And I, I, that's not a particularly... Um, it's, it's, it's not a particularly flowery praise or even very specific, but I was impressed with the questions. I she, want she did ask intelligent questions, but she she let them completely get away with not. But she did, them. yeah. And it would have been nice if she had pressed them to answer those questions. The, uh, the other was, and this has got a shout out to Amy Dials, recent X-ray award winner, who has sit, sat in this chair previously as an X-ray DJ. She, uh, Amy Dials, said she wished that Susan Page would stop saying thank you. That when she wanted Mike Pence to be quiet, that instead of saying thank you, she'd say something like, be quiet, or that's enough, or it's Kamala Harris's turn, or Mr. Pre Mr. Vice President, you've been heard, or some other thing other than expressing gratitude for somebody continuing to break the rules. And I, I noticed that same thing, that her one please be quiet line was thank you. And, you know, to somebody who has been instructed to move on quickly and don't offend the moderator, a thank you is enough. If thank you is not enough, Maybe have other words in your quiver. Yeah, like uh, like you're you're running over the time you agreed to, Mr. Vice President. Of course, that gets back to one of the critiques that I have is the short answer thing, and that we we are so training the electorate to think in terms of short answers, and we're going to grade we're going to grade people who are going to occupy the Oval Office, who are going to have their finger potentially on the nuclear button, we are going to grade them by how well they do in 120 seconds addressing something that often is very complex. Uh, and that whole thing, I, I just, I yearn, I yearn for a, a debates like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where they really had time to elaborate and to explain and to, to discuss the fact that complex problems require complex 
answers in complex discussion. The uh, which gets me down. While we're talking about the debates, wow. we should perhaps uh, speculate as to whether or not there is going to be a, a presidential debate next week because the DD campaign, DDT campaign, has said they are not willing to do it on Zoom. And the sponsors have, are indicating that, well, we're not sure that it will... You can't bring somebody with a communicable disease on stage. Right. You can't walk right. them through security. You can't put them in a closed room. You can't have them handle the microphone. You can't help them adjust their podium when they might give you a communicable disease. It doesn't make any sense. No. And, and, the, and the fact that that uh, the, the, the DDT campaign came out with a statement saying how he had won the first debate so big and they were not going to have some kind of a Zoom thing. Just, just, oh, my goodness. And the physician who is unwilling to give us the information, give the sponsors of the debates the information that on which they could intelligently decide whether or not there should be a live debate. We we don't know when he last t- tested negative. We don't know when he first tested positive. The uh, d- have have you witnessed the interview the, the the press conference if you can call it that of the doctor? No, but I don't want to change the subject yet, Dad. I have to say I have, in in moderating this show, I have some sympathy and empathy with Chris Wallace and Susan Page. Susan Page was ineffective and totally aggravating. She gave Pence much more time than Harris. Kamala did miss several great points. I just wanted the American people to recall when Merrick Garland got held back. Yeah, I, I thought I thought Kamala Harris did a good job, but of course it's it's so easy to Wednesday morning uh, debate coach. There was one other, and I, Dad, I want to know if you had any other Wednesday morning debate coaching. Here is one other for me, and that is Pence was trying so very hard to be urbane in deportment trying so very hard to uh, seem reasonable. And I would have liked uh, and, and to defend, at the same time, defend the Trump record. And I think there would have been a chance for Kamala Harris to be, and I don't have the words, and the fact that I don't have the words now means that this is not a critique. This is just what I think I, I would have liked to work on, words I would have liked to work on, is to separate Pence from Trump. And what, what I mean by that is have some moment where, uh, some moment where Kamala Harris says, listen, listen, you can use all those pretty words. That's not what you would say. You can use all those pretty words, but we know what Donald Trump has done. And to separate, at a, and I'd probably have to do it twice, to separate this, uh, what, what Mike Pence was trying to deliver with the velvet glove, with the, you know, crud-stained fist that has been uh, pounding upon the American people with a virus and with idiocy for the past few years. Pop, any other Wednesday morning debate coaching, and then let's move on to wherever you want. Yes, and first I want to pose a question to give you a chance to answer, because I have an answer to the question that I wanted to give. If you were able to redesign or to control the the debate system, what, if any, changes would you make? Oh, boy. This is... Okay, the one thing I'm sure of is that I would have uh, I would like more debates and a more divergent set of formats. Uh, and the reason I say that, the reason I'm sure about that is because I actually think it's a place to experiment. I know that you like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which, as I recall, were 90 minutes, uh, no, excuse me, were one hour followed by 90-minute rebuttal fi- followed by a 30-minute conclusion. And, and I think that that would be hard in the television age to get people to engage in. I liked, by the way, when I was when I was, I thought that two minutes was a long time for an uninterrupted answer. I liked 90 seconds. I thought one minute was always too fast. I liked 90 seconds, but then I did allow for a back. I did I did appreciate it back and forth. I liked it when there were uh, questions that one could ant could pose to the uh, to the person's counterpart, right? So Kamala Harris, in this case, and Mike Pence would have an opportunity to answer blank number, ask, excuse me, blank number of questions and answer to the other. I like that. I also like, here's a weird one, I like visual aids. And I thought that Ross Perot demonstrated, I mean, there's a reason that people use PowerPoint. Dad, you're not as big a fan of PowerPoint, but you are a big fan, you were a big fan of well-done visuals. PowerPoint is just one tool that, that does that. You used an overhead projector when you were doing your teaching and presentations very often. 
And I like visuals. And I think if you had an opportunity, and this might be, of course, there's one vice presidential debate, but if you had multiple presidential debates, as you do, one of them that did go beyond the 90-second to two-minute answers plus some back and forth and did have some long, you know, focused on topics and asked people to give a six-minute, asked ask people to give a 10-minute presentation on the whole deal with opportunities for people then to question you on the pieces that you went through. So the, the headline is a divergence of formats that would make it interesting but also vary the lengths. What about you, Dad? How would you change it? Well, first, I, I, I'm not... Th- I'm glad you reminded me about the visuals. I agree. I think they really ought to allow visuals because that can be so helpful. First thing, I would insist that there should be opening and closing statements. Second, I believe that they should be given opportunity to question each other. One of the strongest things that Pence did last night was to ask her a question and, and, and press her on the answer and not get it. And I think that was probably where he scored his, his, his biggest point. I think we they ought to be able to ask each other questions and then I would really like to see something like the city club Portland City Club system where they have three people who are chosen uh, as much as possible because of their objectivity to hold up a sign as to whether or not the question has been answered so that if they if they all say the question hasn't been answered Everybody knows the question, and I just really, really would like to see that. Well, Dad, let's move along. Uh, do you? Well, do you think that? How much do you think that this is going to impact the presidential campaign? Typically, it hasn't been proven that vice presidential uh, debates have had a big impact. I think they have. I, I offered my view that I think they did. They have mattered a couple times. Uh, how much do you think this matters? Not at all, a tiny bit. And if it matters a tiny I bit, think, in what direction? I think. I think, as a matter of fact, that it matters a great deal because. Interestingly enough, I don't think it moved, will will have moved the needle much one way or the other because the, the folks who are the, the vast majority of Americans have decided, and and CNN once again had a group of people who supposedly had not decided, and listening to their responses after the debate, the. I don't believe for a minute that at least half of those people who were there really were not decided before. They just say they're undecided so they get to be on the panel and give their views. They're decidedly decided. Uh, uh, But but I think because, because neither one of them really messed up there was nothing that particularly moved the needle and and that is I that is quite significant I think the uh, one thing I got to mention is that once again the vice president bragged about how they had a health plan and there is no health plan and that's the other thing I would do there really ought to be some kind of of fact-checking system that can stroke scroll across the pot when somebody tells a lie as, as he did he told two lies in his, in his first answer that uh, they can scroll across uh, not true or half true. Yeah, instant fact-checking. Instant fact-checking is one of the things I think that would be really useful. I did like, by the way, I did like the pop-up video thing. I did like the uh, commentary to the right uh, of the screen where they allow, where they had some additional facts and stuff. I sort of like that. I, you know, I'm, I'm down with the innovation. But Pop, well, I got to get to. Uh, go ahead. What were you watching? Uh, what which which uh, channel were you watching? By the way, that's a good question. Maybe that's a good question. I didn't pick the channel. Uh, I didn't pick the channel, and it was afterwards. The coverage was BBC, so uh, so I don't know if so I don't know if that was C-SPAN or or, or who has BBC after it. Because because I wa- I watched on C-SPAN, and on C-SPAN there was not the the the. the thing you're talking about was not there. Then it wasn't C-SPAN. I don't know. That, uh, and, some, and, I cho- and I frankly chose C-SPAN because I felt it would be the most objective. Yeah. Well, Dad, he, we've got some city election news that we've got to say. First of all, Mingus Maps has a poll funded by, uh, it's the DHM research poll. This is the same outfit that polled showing Sarah Anarone up 11 points, 41 to 30 over Ted Wheeler. Now, that's both notable because Wheeler was within a whisker of winning the darn thing in the primary. I mean, really a whisker. And she came in third. 
And the no, Anna Rohn came in second. She came in second. She came in second. Uh, the uh, but it's also notable because that still shows a lot of undecided voters. Uh, interesting, interesting. Thirteen undecided and sixteen good, apparently going to write in Teresa Rayford. Now a poll by the same outfit, also p- funded by the Portland Business Alliance, showing Mingus Maps up on Chloe Daily, forty-one to twenty-five. Did you see that one? I did not see that, but it does, does not surprise me. It does not surprise me in part because I, I saw, I, I passed a, a yard the other day that had a TED sign and a Mingus Map sign side by side, and I thought, boy, the, the, biggest, the biggest thing that's moving it is not people voting for Mingus, it is not people voting for Sarah, it is people voting against the incumbents because they... they uh, and th- that's that is that's what's driving both. Of it them is a it's it's evening. a good it's a good point that this isn't just about Ted Wheeler and isn't just about Chloe Daly. It is also about this is such a stressful time and it's gonna and again I'm not here to apologize for the current elected officials, but I do want to offer just my unvarnished view that this is a terrifically stressful time. I was part of an email exchange last night for an organization I volunteered with, and where two people in the organization were just really upset at each other and saying oh, I'm out of here, I don't do this. And, and I'm realizing it's such a stressful time for people. It's been a stressful time here. It's been a stressful time in families. We've seen, we've seen domestic violence go up. We've seen uh, so many indicators of stress that really matters. And stress can sound soft. It's part of our, uh, it's part of our lack of appreciation for the reality of mental health. This is, it can feel it's like, oh, no, just rub some dirt on it. That's not a real thing. Stress is real. Stress is more impactful. A scar in your brain matters more than a scar in your leg. And developing that kind of mental pain is a bigger deal than having a busted ankle. It's a vastly, vastly more important thing. Having CTE, having you know, a repeated con- concussion problem is vastly more important than a hurt back. And we do need to change our culture and change our awareness of mental health in general because it impacts how we interact with the world. It makes us not as smart policymakers, not as smart colleagues, not as smart family members, not as smart neighbors, not as good at any of the things we need to do because we just have broken or, or shall I say, deeply imperfect rhetorical architecture around how we understand mental health but there's a lot of stress going on and i do think that stress ends up translating to an anti-incumbent sentiment i think the protests are adding to an anti-incumbent sentiment and the funny thing is is that that means right now if you ask a portlander this is funny i haven't thought about it until just this moment pop until you said what you said so i appreciate you that if you asked a typical portlander right now they would vote against the following three politicians donald trump Ted Wheeler and Chloe Daly. Now, if you are going to map out three politicians with different viewpoints on a, on the traditional spectrum, I don't love the spectrum, but on the traditional spectrum, they would not be in the same place. And you'd have a lot of you be voting no, uh, uh, voting for the alternative to all three of those people. In fact, a significant number of Portlanders. Yep. Well, Dad, we've other, also other other election news that might right. be worth worth mentioning. Uh, the, that at least I think I hope have a, one that I hope has an effect on the election. The heads of the major federal intelligence agencies did a video in which they warned that the there really was interference, uh, attempted interference by Russia, but also assuring people that the election was not rigged and the election was going to be fair. I, I'm, I'm wondering if all of them are going to be fired when, when DDT learns about it. And all of the polls, are shows, of course, we'll get another set of polls the next 36, 72 hours trying to see if there was a bump from last night. But uh, I hope that I hope that the Biden folk do not uh, rest on their laurels because of what the polls are saying right now. And related related to the election because they have been used as a prop by DDT, did you catch that Patricia and Mark McCloskey have been indicted in St. Louis? I missed that. These are the gun-toting, mansion-owning couple. They have. They have been, they have been indicted for pointing their guns, and she has been also indicted for 
tampering with evidence because apparently she tried to do something to her pistol to suggest that it was inoperable when she was pointing it before it was before it was turned over to the police. Yeah, all of the all of the pro-gun propaganda and all the open carrying and the allow being allowed to carry a gun doesn't mean you're allowed to brandish it, right? It's not, it, and we should probably you know, we need to change the rules anyhow. But even the current rules don't mean you should be brandishing the darn thing. That here's another piece of uh, of local political news. I don't know if you saw this one. Did you see this? The uh, the new coalition that's going to spend. The campaign money that Wheeler won't, the new independent expenditure campaign uh, that is there to support Ted Wheeler? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's United for Portland. It's SEIU, the Portland Business Alliance, the Columbia Building Trades, the Restaurant uh, the Restaurant Association, the League of Conservation Voters, uh, and the Portland NAACP who is there, to be clear. They're not the ones bringing the, bringing the dough to it. This is actually, this was a disagreement that, that I, that there was real disappointment about the League of Conservation Voters getting in that, getting in that mix. It's one thing when the, when the sort of business and labor uh, power structure says, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we, we're going to help carry water for this mayor and, and put in a bunch of money into an expenditure campaign to keep them. There are people that had a little bit different feeling about the League of Conservation Voters and NAACP getting into the mix. But yeah, so remember, Ted Wheeler didn't run public, right? He didn't take public financing. He didn't take the matching money. And he thought, well, I'd be able to get big contributions. And then voters passed. By the way, they had already passed it. He just thought he wasn't going to abide by it. But anyway, voters passed campaign contribution limits. And so he's got he's sitting on almost no money. He loaned himself $150,000. And so now he's getting... Finish, then then I have something more to say about that. He loaned himself $150,000. He's getting sued over that. Both Pop yeah, and that, I. That's, I want to talk about this. The, the, she, she, is, she is suing Caballero, uh, the auditor, saying that uh, for failing to enforce the restriction in the, in the ordinance that says you cannot give yourself more than $5,000. And Caballero has said she's not enforcing that because she doesn't think there's a chance it will survive in court, which, by the way, I am willing to bet she's right. So what this means is, is usually the independent expenditure campaign, I mean, I shouldn't just say usually. They do a couple of things. They can do pro ads. In this case, they probably will do some pro Wheeler ads because Wheeler only has 134 grand in the bank, which is enough money to do like one ad. Uh, but the, I don't mean air it once, but, you know, get one ad to a decent number of people a decent number of times. Uh, but it's, uh, Sarah Aaron has twice as much money. That $134,000 is, is less than the amount of money he gave himself. He loaned himself to the campaign. It was 150. You know, they have 134. Okay. And, uh, but they haven't said how much. We don't, I don't know how much this United for, or, United for Portland is going to be putting in. But they said as much as they need to get their message out, this reporting in the Willamette Week. Uh, and the other, the other issue, though, is it might turn out it's a negative campaign, raising doubts about Sarah Iannarone. It also raised one of. I'm guessing that's where most of the money will go, and, and because because I think that the, the, those organizations are motivated by a fear that, and, and which I, I also think is also has at least a tinge of misogyny, but a fear that she is simply not by experience uh, up to up to managing the job. It is a um, and or that she is. Uh, and or that she is not as in on the joke, right? That she is not part of the uh, coalition cabal that runs most of Oregon politics now, right? That operates what is currently, you know, that, that wears the Democratic Party brand, but doesn't, it's not because they're a bunch of like precinct committee people that go to Multnomah County Party meetings. It's because they are the groups that wield the biggest power. And this is the power groups, SEIU and the Business Alliance and the Columbia uh, Building Trades Council. These are the folks who want to build uh, you know, sort of build, baby, build the uh, Oregon restaurateurs. I mean, these are the biggest power players in the region who are putting together this independent expenditure campaign. And I do, I do think it will cause there'll be some people, uh, including, uh, including some people listening to this program, I suspect, who will be a little bit concerned, or maybe more than a little bit. The League of Conservation Voters has jumped alongside the Business Alliance and the Building Trades Council and the Restaurant Association. To uh, to do this campaign to try to take down Sarah Anarone, 
there is still a chance it might backfire. There are folks who say, listen, if this is if it really is just power trying to hold on to power, then this is yet another reason to try to shake things up a little bit. I could imagine it backfiring. But there's one other dynamic that I wanted to uh, one other dynamic that I wanted to point out. And that is that campaign finance reform is going to be on the agenda for the coming legislative session. And these groups tend to be groups that are uh, particularly, particularly like the business associations, are groups that tend to be pretty opposed to campaign finance limits. And I even wonder, and their biggest argument is, ah, if you do that, we'll just do independent expenditure campaigns. And to me, I even see this as a shot across the bow for that as an example for folks, oh yeah, you can limit contributions if you want to. We'll just do independent expenditure campaigns. Well, we're next. well, we're talking about money in politics. Did you catch what Zuckerberg is contributing to Measure One Ten, which is a substance abuse? I did see. That. I forgot how much it was, but I did see that he donated to it. Five hundred thousand dollars. That's nothing. That's which nothing. Zuckerberg is maybe chump change, but but when you're talking about. The, the money available for a a local initiative is huge. I think they need to make $100,000 coins. And the reason I think they need to make... If we're not going to do something about wealth disparities, we're just going to continue to have wealth disparities grow as they have been for the last 40 years, then we've got to start making $100,000 coins. And the reason is, is because then this would literally be the change in his couch cushions. Right. If we had $100,000 coins, he'd pick up five of those coins and he'd give those to the campaign. Because this is basically the change in his couch cushions. But I suspect that he doesn't have change that is worth $500,000. So he probably had to write a check of some sort. And so much of this campaign, and by the way, I, and for people who care about money and politics, for people who care about campaign finance, I think this, is, this campaign is almost turning on that now. I think this campaign is about that issue. And it hadn't occurred to me as sharply as right now that the mayor's decision to go after four and five figure checks early on and to not abide by the rules that 87 percent of Portlanders voted in favor of because he didn't think they were going to be enforced. And then his decision to follow along, but then not have the basis support to be able to get the small contributions and choose not to abide by the other thing that Portland voters voted in favor of, which is public financing and matching money. Even if he had got the matching money, he wouldn't have had that much money in his campaign coffers because he didn't have that many contributors. And then the lawsuit that Sarah Anarone has filed and what, I think, 13 complaints on Ted Wheeler and now this independent expenditure campaign, which cuts multiple ways because people look at the groups that were in. And obviously, there was a lot of pressure applied to get other groups in it. So it wasn't just uh, labor and business. It wasn't just financial interest. They wanted to get a couple other brands in there, and they successfully did that. And that can make it look like, oh, look, there's good, good folks who are supporting the mayor. So it could cut both ways. And, of course, getting some message out about trying to knock around Santa Ana or trying to promote Ted Wheeler, that could work. Uh, but I also suspect that tonight... Sarah Anarone will raise the question, will raise the issue in the debate. I, Dad, I think this campaign is coming down to maybe the, the most important thing, of course, is what's happening with the protests and COVID-19. Those are the most important dynamics. But I think from a policy perspective, one of the most important things happening in this race, what it might turn on is, in fact, campaign finance. What say you? Yes, I think that's right. And, and while we're talking about the 150K, one thing that that I think is important to remember is that the the raison d'être, if that's the correct French pronunciation, I think it probably of is limits not. of limits on on campaign contributions, is because of the inevitable relationship between the interests of the contributor on policy by the contributee. And a, a good case can be made that you would probably be, be better off on that standpoint if candidates could only spend their own money. <laughs> because then you wouldn't have to worry about them being influenced by folks who wrote the checks. Well, Pop, what do you got next? Well, some, some court news. As, as I said, the Supreme Court is back in session. There are only eight of them there, so there will be no five to four decisions. <laughs> If they, there, there may be some four-to-four four decisions, and of course a four-to-four four decision is no decision, leaving the ruling of the lower court, whatever it was, in place. And then that, of, I think, quite some significance, 
the court has declined to hear the case of Kim Davis. Kim Davis was the clerk who refused to issue a marriage license to a same-sex couple, and they have declined to hear that, which means that the circuit court decision on that stays that she lost, and that was the the re, Justices Olito, Alito and Thomas wrote an excoriating dissent in the refusal to hear it, going after the I'm never sure how to pronounce Obergefell, anyway, the the ruling of the court, which said that same-sex marriage was constitutional, constitutionally required to be allowed, and went after that. that. But that was of, of some significance. Cases the, the court heard yesterday, the case of Google v. Oracle, which is two real heavyweights arguing over an $8 billion copyright suit, Google saying that Oracle violated copyright. The tech industry is all lined up behind Google. The entertainment industry is all like a, lined up behind Oracle. Cases that are, that are going to go on to the Supreme Court very probably is the Second Circuit uh, has told DDT that Cyrus Vance, the district attorney of, of Manhattan, does have the right to get his tax returns, and that is going to get to the Supreme Court. There's no way it's going to get to the Supreme Court before the 3rd of November, but uh, it, it, th- that is going to be something to watch. And also, the uh, the Eric Trump did wind up having to be deposed by the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, and so that that has actually happened. Those those are things to watch. All of which may wind up may may wind up one or another in the Supreme Court. The uh, and another one that wind up Texas Texas is has brought criminal charges against Netflix for a movie that they have aired, telling the story of an 11 year old African girl who and what the movie is apparently all about is wrongful exploitation of children, but they're saying it's too sexually suggestive. That's another one to keep our eye on. Well, Dad, some other election news, and it is election season, and some national election news. Texas is in play right now in the presidential race. We have multiple polls showing a dead heat between Trump and Biden in Texas. Texas, if Texas goes to the Democrats over time, it is, over. it is all she wrote for the modern Republican Party. And I, and I, I don't say that to overstate it. If, they, if, it both, if that would happen to both Florida and Texas, then there is just no way to draw an electoral map that Republicans can win nationally. Uh, just no way to do it. You'd have to flip California, and they are not trending in a positive direction in California. And by the way, this I think, Dad, and the reason I say this right after, there's a reason I say this right after you say the story about the Supreme Court. And it does make me think about Hitler. And no, I don't mean like the the parallel to Hitler that most people uh, might think I mean. That's not what I mean. I just mean the Tommaso Ungvari uh, lesson that I took, took studied totalitarian regimes from Tommaso Ungvari. And he, and he, illustrated the story about how at the end of World War II, the Nazis continued to uh, continued to engage in genocide rather than using all of their uh, rather than using all of their military resources to try to be at the front to not lose the war. And he said, you have to understand the raison d'etre. And he did not provide the attempted French pronunciation that you uh, that you offered, Pop. but he did use the French phrase, the raison d'etre, the, the essential purpose the uh, the essential purpose of the Nazi movement was the destruction and the genocide of European Jewry, and the and therefore in the final throes, rather than trying to win the war, in the final throes they were making the effort to do that. Just recently, we saw something really interesting, and that is the effort the effort to uh, push Amy Coney Barrett simultaneous with. The setting aside, the president setting aside any current hope for another round of economic stimulus relief, 
of coronavirus relief and to punctuate it, of course, the super spreader event to make it just like a movie, the super spreader event at the um, Amy Coney Barrett. I, I, I need to get all those pronunciations, all those consonants correct. The Amy Coney Barrett essentially announcement press conference thing where then a bunch of people get coronavirus. And yeah, the, she she apparently had it and can't help wondering is 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 she incapable of, of giving it to other people. And it gets you to your democracy in chains, it gets you to raison d'etre, it gets you to your George Will, who wrote his recent book, said the biggest party was the Supreme Court. It gets you to the question that was just asked by uh, by Mike Pence. They see the writing on the wall. They see that their party has been deeply rooted in uh, in the bet that they made in the Southern strategy that Nixon adopted in the big flip after the Civil Rights Act in uh, racial injustice. They, they're just tied into it. They've become a party for white people almost entirely. And they see the direction of the country and they realize it's going to be harder for them to win elections. And that's why they need to have the court. They, they just have to have the court because if they can keep the court for a while and if they can use that to block the stuff that a Democratic majority would do, climate change legislation, uh, promoting democracy legislation, promoting the middle class, health care legislation, that the court is their chance. It's what the whole gig is about. They have to, they absolutely have to uh, push Amy Coney Barrett. And so to think people who think that the ultimate essence is just of that movement is just the tax cuts, it isn't. It's also so that they can push through judges who will make sure things like the tax cuts stay and social welfare legislation, just like the Lochner era court did 100 years ago, social welfare legislation, if it can't be blocked by a governor, if it can't be blocked by a house, if it can't be blocked by a Senate, if it can't be blocked by a president, it gets blocked by a court. And and to give give an example of how significant that can be, and also how significant it is whether or not the Senate might flip, is the 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 House omnibus bill. The House has an omnibus bill which doesn't have a prayer in the present Senate, but almost certainly will would pass if the Senate flips, particularly if it. If, if it had 52 votes, you wouldn't have to worry about the guy from West Virginia. But the Democrat omnibus bill, which and I'm going to give all the things that are in this bill, which is really, really quite remarkable. First, it requires the president to provide information on any pardon or commutation that is related to the president so that uh, you, you would have data on that to provide enforcement of the emoluments clause to suspend the statute of limitations on any president so that while the president is president, statute of limitations on any crime committed either before he or she was president or while he or she was president is simply suspended. It uh, increases the power to enforce subpoenas so you can't just thumb your nose at a subpoena issued by Congress. It enforces budget budget enforcement power so that you can't have things like taking money from the Defense Department to build your your wall to, to keep that sort of thing from happening, to increase the transparency of emergency declarations, to increase the reporting of communications between the president and the Department of Justice. It's a long uh, list. You can see why that need to to reduce the power of the president to fire. And and Dad, what's general. the and, and and yeah. So and what's your what, what do you want to get at with the list? Well, what I'm getting I'm, I'm getting all this omnibus bill because because if this omnibus omnibus bill if it passes is inevitably going to, in whole or at least in part, be up before the Supreme Court. The, the omnibus bill gives whistleblowers the right to sue if they are outed. It limits, this is a big one, it limits... Wait, so what, what, what's the, wait, let me finish. It limits the power of the president to put people in acting positions to 120 days, so you wouldn't have the situation where right now there are three courts that have ruled 
that there are three acting secretaries or deputy secretary who's acting as a secretary that one of whom has been acting for more than 400 days so you couldn't simply ignore the constitutional provision on that producing Hatch Act penalties and saying that campaigns must report any offers from foreigners to uh, to what they are doing all of that all of that is if it passes is going to be in front of the Supreme Court and if that Supreme Court is a 6 to 3 a lot of the things that I just named all of which every one of which is a really good idea could be in jeopardy I mean the reason why the questions are coming so fervently will you change the filibuster and will you enhance the court to be clear I don't like the pack the court thing as soon as they took the Merrick Garland seat, they already packed the court. In terms, of what they've been doing by blocking Obama appointees and then jamming through Trump appointees, they've been spending years and even decades packing the court. The Federalist Society, had, funded by the Koch brothers, brothers, has put in. I like saying Koch brothers. The Koch brothers is putting in has put in unprecedented millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they have gone past a billion dollars by now in a project to transform the American judiciary. They've been packing the court for decades. The argument now is whether you expand the court. And the reason those questions are coming so fervently is because people do see the writing on the wall. And not just the Trump versus Biden writing on the wall, the writing on the wall of a changing America. When Mitch McConnell was crying in his beer, almost literally, after Obama's victory, and saying, oh, how are we ever going to get power back? And he decided, I get it. We're going to get power back by just being totally anti-government, anti-democracy, by being anti-Obama, not cooperating on anything, fighting on anything, identifying as our top objective, discrediting and defeating that guy, and, by the way, then dismantling democratic mechanisms of accountability, trying to have an anti-democracy regime, because if we can't actually win a majority of the people, let's make sure to govern the country you don't have to win a majority of the people. And that has been the project now for a while, and that is what is at stake. So, yeah, the filibuster is and and it makes me nervous like jeff merkley who's been on this very program of course was instrumental in getting rid of the filibuster for lower court judges uh, which was a, was a necessary thing so that all of obama's appointments not get blocked and then mitch mcconnell got rid of the filibuster for supreme court appointments and now the next shoe may, may well be Democrats getting rid of the filibuster. And this means that it will be, if Republicans can take power back, much easier to get rid of important pieces of the, of the sort of social justice apparatus that we have in the United States. Imagine if in the early Trump days there hadn't been an ability for before uh, Nancy Pelosi, before Democrats took the House, if there hadn't been an ability to filibuster certain things, it would have been a, a dangerous situation. I think that's why Biden is nervous about it. Reasonable people can disagree. But I do think in order to enact a meaningful agenda on health care, on climate change, etc., you're going to have to do away with the filibuster, and Democrats are going to have to hope that they're able to win big majorities not only in 2020, but beyond. Dad, we got another minute or two. Any other news well, that I have, you want to make sure I have, you get a mid, I have a middle view on the filibuster. I, I am uneasy about doing away with the filibuster altogether, but I would like to see them reinstating the rule on the filibuster that you actually have to filibuster, that it, that it isn't enough. Yeah, just pretend. That, yeah, that, you, you, that you've got to maintain 24-7 discussion to maintain the filibuster. And, and I, I'm with you, Dad. I'm with you. There should be an honest to go to filibuster because the way I understood the rule, was that it was a no-interruption rule. It wasn't a blocking legislation rule. It wasn't if, you know, there was a group of people who didn't like it, who was in the minority, wanted to block a piece of legislation, they could go ahead and block it, just as they so said. It was so that if somebody had something to say, they could keep saying it, and they'd keep saying it, and they weren't allowed to be interrupted. I think having a no-interruption rule is a good rule. Well, Pop, what else you got? Or is it time for Strong the Wind? Well, let me just, let me just quick mention a couple of international things that I think are, are worth mentioning that uh, the Pope has put out an encyclical, which is obviously a commentary on the United States election without naming the election. But he is saying that the marketplace by itself cannot resolve every problem, however much we wish as to believe this dogma of neoliberal faith. 
who has talked about immigration and, and people who resist immigration as because immigrants are less worthy, less important, less human, castigating people who take that position and and who he criticizes myopic, extremist, resentful, and aggressive nationalism. The Pope, once again, is speaking up. Quite remarkable. Well, Dad, the uh, brew doctor is closing its Oregon tea shops. They're going to focus on selling kombucha. I don't think you're a big kombucha drinker, but we should mention the University of Oregon has had, and University and OSU had as well, but University of Oregon is having a pretty big coronavirus spike. It looks like the primary culprit is parties. Uh, and Portland Public Schools has announced it's going to extend its distance learning through the end of January. But, Pop, I think it is time for a straw in the wind. Like a straw in the wind. And I am embarrassed, embarrassed to admit that I did not plan a straw in the wind this morning. And I'm feeling really stupid. So we'll have to have two of them on Monday, and we'll be back on Monday. Well, Dad, I'll give you one. I don't know if it's straw in the wind, but last night I drove to the wrong house. Last night I was coming home. Oh, did you really? Yeah, you went yeah. specific? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go. I didn't make it all the way there. But I was like, wait a minute, I don't live there anymore, and I, <laughs> I got I got turned back on the freeway. Yeah, yeah, I doubled my commute time. Love you, Pop.